Well, this idea of the true self is connected to a term in the Bible called the heart. And in biblical text, the heart goes beyond just mere, like we might use it in modern language, mere um, emotions or romantic feelings. In the Bible, the term the heart really um, means our core, central, orienting faculty. Throughout the Bible, both Hebrew and Greek terms um, collectively, we see that the heart um, wills, um, makes decisions and plans. The heart is connected to our thoughts and our moral behavior. Emotions are attached to our heart as well. Sorrow, anxiety, anger, love comes from this idea of the heart. Our words, Matthew tells us, overflows from our heart. And I think if we put all these concepts together, again, we see that um, clearly that the heart um, is attached to who we really are. It orients us, it directs us. Um, what the heart most loves and trusts and commits itself to is really what's gonna come out in our behavior. And this idea, too, is connected to the idea of um, the, the goal of modern psychology. So if you look at just an elementary idea of what's the goal of modern psychology, it's to um, describe, explain, predict, and control behavior. And that's really what the Bible is talking about when it talks about our heart. So this morning, I want to, I picked, um, first, this passage in Ephesians 3 today, because it connects, it says, to be strengthened in the innermost being. It connects this idea of who our true self is, who we really are with the heart. And I encourage you at home to go ahead and pull up the text on your phone, actually hard copy. Um, but this Ephesians 3, um, this passage, it's really a prayer that we would be strengthened in our innermost being that we'd be strengthened in who we really are. And it's a prayer that we would be strengthened in the inner self so that Christ can dwell in our hearts individually and collectively, so that Christ can dwell in our hearts through faith and that we would be rooted and grounded in love. And if we wanted to take this prayer and just put it in modern vernacular, it's really a prayer that we could internalize God's love. And if we want to understand what it means to internalize God's love, we can just work through this passage. You know, right at the beginning, verse 16, we see that this love overflows from the riches of God's glory and that it's powerful and strengthening because it's connected to his spirit. Verse 18 goes on to show us that this love is a unifying love. It says, with all the saints. And 18 also shows us that it expands our ability to comprehend him. Verse 19 shows us that this love is able to be known and understood. In the Greek, it literally says, to know surpassing knowledge, the love of Christ. And that verb to know means to be aware of, to be felt, to perceive, to be sure of, to be resolved in, to understand. And then that Greek term knowledge um, is actually connected to the Greek word for science, like data, 
facts, information. So what Paul is really praying here is that we would know, we would feel, we would be aware, we would be resolved in, we would understand God's love in a way that goes beyond just collecting facts and information and data. And then verse 19 says, this love fills us with the fullness of God. I mean, I feel like we could just put the period there and walk out. What more, what better place could there be than to be filled with the fullness of God? If I could internalize this love so that I'm filled to the fullness of God, my worry, my angst, my conflict would be resolved. But Paul doesn't put the period there. He goes on. Verse 20, we see again that in God, this love is powerful. And it goes beyond what we can even ask or think. And it's at work within us. So it goes beyond our human capabilities of being able to ask or think, and yet it's powerfully at work within us. And finally, verse 21 says, this love demonstrates God's glory through the church in Christ Jesus. This is a picture of God's love for us. This is the love Paul is praying for us. And then Ephesians 5, the passage that George read, it goes beyond just the general or the internal self. And it shows how this love is powerful to transform our behavior and our social interactions. But Paul doesn't exhort the believers in any behavioral change before he first reminds them who they are and whose they are. He says, as beloved children, that's who we are of God. That's whose we are. God the Son is the one who loved us and gave himself up for us and sacrificed for us. And because of that love, because of that beauty, because of that excellency, that love is the basis of the transformation of our behaviors and our social interactions. Why don't we seem to be internalizing this love like this prayer portrays? Why doesn't it seem that we're characterized of being transformed like this prayer is praying? What are the barriers from us being able to internalize God's love? And I think there's several common barriers worth our time, worth our attention. Somewhat psychological in nature, the first barrier would be biology, biological factors, neurotransmitters. I feel like those get a lot of press today. You can have an overproduction of neurotransmitter. You can have an underproduction of neurotransmitters. If your neural pathways are overactivated, it can lead to symptoms like hallucinations. That can be a barrier to internalizing God's love. And in, um, I guess, extreme cases, that could be... Um, presented in schizophrenia. Also, if you're using illicit drugs, that can happen. Um, then on the other end of the spectrum, we could have an underproduction of neurotransmitters. If your body isn't producing enough serotonin, I feel like that's another one we hear a lot about, or if you don't have enough receptor sites, um, it can lead to what psychologists call the SAD effect, which is presented in major depression. 
And social experiences can also contribute to biological factors. So if a young child goes through maladaptive um, social experiences like poor parental attachment at a young age, it can literally affect the limbic system of the brain. So those are sort of the deep structures um, embedded in the cerebrum of the brain. But it can literally affect your anatomical, your anatomy, so that it's sort of hyperactivated. And then later on, when that person goes through similar negative experiences, they can have a hyperactivation of anxiety, um, sadness, anger. And that kind of leads to our next barrier. So biological factors can be barriers to us internalizing God's love, like this prayer is praying for other people. Other people can be barriers. And you know, it's kind of interesting that other people can be barriers when this prayer is praying that we would be able to internalize God's love alongside other believers. But too often in the church, not only are we not internalizing God's love together, but we're barriers to one another. Sometimes others can be barriers um, for us to internalize God's love because we sort of leave the door open to it. You know, as we do life together, we're going to see each other's shortcomings. <laughs> we're going to bump and bruise into each other. And we might be tempted. We might just keep replaying that in our minds, sort of leaving that door open as we just keep thinking about that irritating shortcoming of somebody else, of just thinking about the various levels of hurt or pain that we experience. And as we keep replaying that in, that, in our minds and giving it time and attention, it's a barrier because we're not able to internalize God's love during those thoughts. Maybe you're thinking, well, you don't know the husband I have. You don't know the family I have or the family I was raised in. You don't know my church experience. You don't know this neighbor I have or this boss I have. And you're right, I don't know. But God does, and it's still his will for you to internalize his love in the depths of your being. But other times, other people are a barrier because of abuse. It's not so much that we left the door open as much as somebody came in, barged in, and forced the door open. And there's many facets of barriers to internalizing God's love in those experiences, including biological ones, like I mentioned earlier. So we can have biological factors, we can have other people, internal emotions. Negative internal emotions, frustrations, insecurities, self-pity, anger. And certainly these negative emotions don't correspond to God's love or will for us. But sadly, too often we rush in to count these emotions in and of themselves as sin. And don't get me wrong, like they can quickly give birth to sin and manifest into sin, but I think we do well to just pause a minute and not count the emotions in and of themselves as wrong, but to first count them as signs, as signs of an area needing attention, of signs to just pause and meditate a little more 
to internalize God's love a little more deeply. And if we don't see these emotions as signs first, what can happen is we count them as wrong and sin. And so we deny them and we suppress them and we distract ourselves to them. And often we quickly move on to something else and we miss that opportunity to see a need within ourselves to internalize God's love more deeply. If we can look at the emotions going through us as signs first, they actually can become blessings. They actually can be gracious acts of the Spirit showing to us, hey, look here. Hey, here's a place to give a little attention to. Here's a need to meditate on God's love more deeply. And before I move on to emotions, I also just want to um, state that the absence of emotions can also be a sign of a lack of spiritual wholeness. When there are situations that we go through that warrant a certain level of emotion and it is not there, that's a sign of an area in need of attention as well. So we have biological factors, other people, internal emotions. Another barrier can be self-deception. Freud called these defense mechanisms, and it's common, it's interesting and common to me, or it's interesting to me and common in the counseling field that among those who often go in to receive counseling services, and this doesn't even count the many people who probably would benefit from some therapy and counseling, but among the very people who go in for counseling service, many are characterized by showing a good degree of resistance to self-examination and looking at those underlying dynamics that are at work within them. And this can be especially true if in childhood one was exposed to environments that chronically activated feelings of shame and guilt and embarrassment. Another area related to self-deception is self-awareness. You know, we can lack self-awareness. We can have trouble thinking about our thinking, trouble articulating our thoughts, our experiences, our emotions. And this is certainly true of adolescence. Um, it's not uncommon for adolescents to have various experience, thoughts, and emotions and just not be able to um, make a mental image of it and articulate it and express it. And, so if you are an adolescent, it's a very worthwhile endeavor to come along someone older who can ask you questions and listen and help you to think about your thinking and your emotions and your experiences more. Self-awareness can also be difficult if we've gone through trauma. Um, and there's a real need for others to come alongside of someone who's been through trauma to help them mentally represent experiences, and be able to verbalize emotions and thoughts. And I just kind of want to take just a little side note to say, all of this demonstrates that it's a worthwhile endeavor as Christians in soul care to learn to come alongside others, to ask questions, and to listen well. 
And for what it's worth, as we progress through the rest of this series, we are going to be looking at common mental health issues and how to specifically um, ask questions and come alongside one another better. But for now, um, I think it's worth mentioning again that um, learning to listen and ask questions to one another, but also realizing that timing, level of maturity, level of trust also needs to be factors in that. So barriers, we got biological, other people, internal emotions, um, self-deception along with self-awareness, and the last one is sin. You know, sin at its core is just the inner opposition to God's supremacy. We really just want to be our own independent little sovereigns. We don't want to have to depend on God. And just to note, we don't depend on God because we're sinners. We depend on God because that's what we were created to do. We were created to depend on God. Adam and Eve depended on God before they ever fell. We were created to depend on him. But that rebellion against dependency on him and his ways is sin. And of course, any of those above barriers can easily and quickly lead or give birth to sin. And sin can lead to idolatry. Idolatry is simply looking to other things as the source of our life, the source of our hope, the source of our joy, our peace, our happiness, rather than looking to God, you know, looking to our job or wealth, finances, physical beauty, um, entertainment, pleasure, looking at any of those things as our source of joy and hope in life rather than to God. And at some point, if we stay in that idolatry, it can move to deceitful, demonic level because the enemy is ever trying to deceive, disunite, and destroy us. So we have these various barriers. How do we remove them? How do we help other people remove them? You know, when I was a teacher, boy, I spent a lot of time planning uh, lesson plans, how to arrange my classroom, certain learning activities to try to help others grow and mature and um, develop. And in our own strengths, boy, it is exhausting <laughs> and often fruitless. But luckily for us, God has had a plan from the beginning of time before we ever even knew we needed help. And God's plan was to send God the Son to unite himself to this human condition. At the cross, Jesus became our brokenness. Because Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, he could take our broken biology he can take our broken society, our broken relationships, our broken self-perception and take all that on at the cross and have victory and conquer it by his resurrection. And we likewise now, we don't have to let the brokenness be our identity. Through Christ, through faith in Christ, we can take on his identity through faith thanks to God's grace. And that 
isn't like the end of the story. That's just the beginning. God the Father's plan was to unite himself to us through faith in Christ and by the ongoing, indwelling, empowering Holy Spirit. So the clear center of Christian soul care, the clear center of any soul care and healing is union with the triune God. God initially overcame our greatest barrier, our depraved nature, the curse of sin, his wrath by Jesus' work on the cross. And through ongoing communion with him, God the Father, Son, and Spirit continues to unite us to overcome these various barriers. Through communion with God the Father, Son, and Spirit, he continues to help us internalize his love. Through communion with God, he's doing nothing less than bringing us as rebellious image bearers into his own glorious love and righteousness. So what does it look like for communion with God to push deeper into our lives and help us remove barriers and internalize his love? It really needs to start first with our mind. We need to engage our minds. Again, the biblical term, the heart and the mind, there's really no dichotomy. They're really connected and together. And so communing with God to further push out barriers and internalize his love needs to engage our mind. We need to have some thoughts connected to it. You know, 1 Corinthians 2 says we have the mind of Christ. Romans 12 says be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But it doesn't just stay in our minds and thoughts. Um, we also want to be transformed. We want to read the word and engage our minds in a way that unites us with the spirit. So we engage our mind and we internalize the word. We read and we study the word expectantly, expecting the spirit to do a work in us. You know, again, God first removed our greatest barrier through communion with himself. And he continues to remove barriers with ongoing communion with him. So it makes sense that we would want to be opening ourselves up and spending our attention on his and his word. And I think there's, a, there's many metaphors throughout scripture about internalizing his word. Maybe the strongest one is the one of his word being food. Jesus is called the bread of life our sustenance. And like physical food, the gospel of Jesus Christ is intended to come into us, permeate our being, and be the fuel of our life. When we sit down to eat physical food, we can say, thank you, God, for this food that sustains me physically and keeps me going. And thank you, Jesus, that you are the bread of life that keeps me going spiritually. When we gather together and take the Lord's Supper, we can remember that as we take the bread, Jesus, you are the bread of life that sustains us. I think another important metaphor worth mentioning is um, that of a mirror. The Bible is also called a mirror. James uses the metaphor of a mirror to teach us to internalize the word, to really see ourselves for who we are and be transformed. And so we engage our minds, we internalize the word, and we join the spirit in the work of self-examination. Self-examination is being honest, looking at oneself honestly. 
you know, modern psychological research has found very strong to moderate outcomes, positive outcomes um, for interventions that promote self-examination, like questioning and probing and examining. And self-examination is also a biblical mandate. Lamentation says, let us examine and probe our ways. Galatians says, let each one examine his own work. 1 Corinthians 11, test yourselves and examine. The Psalms that we just finished up calls us to question ourselves. Why so downcast, O oh my soul? But proper, healthy self-examination must be theocentric, biblical, and an experience with God. We courageously and cautiously are able to self-examination because as Romans 8.1 tells us, there is therefore now no condemnation. Self-examination is not to condemn, it's to identify and um, let open ourselves to God's work, to the Spirit's work. Self-examination should be communal. Um, when Lawrence preached two weeks ago, the last series on Galatians 6, uh, we're called to carry one another's burdens. We're called to restore one another who's found in sin. Self-examination, though it's something we do internally, there should be a communal aspect to it. And self-examination can also be missional. As others around us see us examining and changing, it can be a testimony to others of God's kindness that leads to repentance. But I think there's also a couple of warnings worth mentioning for self-examination. We only want to examine ourselves in Christ alongside the redemption of heal and healing in Christ. Self-examination can be excessive and counterproductive if it's done outside the redemptive work of Christ. You know, which is a good reminder that self-examination is not an exclusive focus on sin, the law, and obedience. Um, it should not compromise the redemption and healing that happens in Jesus Christ. Um, if you've chatted with me lately, there's a good chance you've heard me quote this old Scottish pastor who said that for Every one time we look at sin, we should look a hundredfold at the redemptive work of Christ. Those need to be together. And if you know or if you sense that you have a tendency to obsessively ruminate, where a thought just gets stuck and cycles in your head and you can't say stop it and you can't get it out, or if you know that you socialize or fellowship with other people who have that ruminating tendency. It's a good idea to intentionally focus your attention on the declarative truths based on Christ's work, that you are positioned with Christ in the heavenly realm, that you are righteous in Christ Jesus, and nothing can change that. And finally, like I talked about in the um, first sermon in this series, don't minimize taking medication if you notice those obsessive ideations. 
if we, all medication is ultimately from God and under God's control, if we, the physical realm is under God's control just as much as the spiritual realm, if we take medication knowing that it's ultimately from God and we receive it with thanksgiving, not only is it good and a gift, but 1 Timothy 4 tells us it is holy. So don't minimize um, taking that in honor and glory of God. And the last thing we want to do to, you know, just as we push through how to work out communion with God ongoingly, to push out those um, barriers and internalize God's love, um, is confession. You know, as, as we internalize the word and self-examine, there's going to be a need for confession. 1 John 1.9 says um, simply that if we agree with God that there is sin, he is faithful to forgive us and, and to cleanse us. Um, you know, as we see barriers that have led to sin, we can just say, yep, God, this is sin, and I receive your forgiveness and your cleansing. And the last thing that I just want to close with is, as we allow internal emotions, memories of social experiences, biological factors, um, to increasingly become signs for us of a need to internalize God's love more, not only do we grow and change and mature and be transformed like Ephesians 5 is calling us to be, but we learn to let these very barriers become greater opportunities to be filled to the fullness of God with his love. What actually could be a distraction, God can flip and use it to be an opportunity to glorify him more. And in fact, the more broken we are, the more opportunity we actually have to let his grace, the glorious riches of his grace, flow through us. Eric Johnson, Eric Johnson, Christian psychologist who I mentioned earlier, put it this way. It would seem to follow then that the worst of believers' biopsychosocial damage and even ethical problems and the more barriers a believer has for accomplishing much in this world, the greater the overall glory potential in that person's Godward story. This renders an extraordinary degree of significance to the sufferings one has endured. For the power of Christ and the resurrection life can be marvelously displayed in the midst of pain, limitation, and affliction through the healing, overcoming, and undoing of such evils in the name of Christ. And 2 Corinthians 12 puts it this way. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And this is nothing less than Holy Spirit empowerment that sets humans free. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do cry out to you. 
And we pray that you would strengthen us in the innermost being by the power of your spirit so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and that we can be rooted and grounded in love, Lord. I pray that you would guide and direct us and help us to communion with you more deeply so that we, as a local church, can live out this prayer. We trust that we're praying your will, and we trust that you will work it out in each of our lives, individually and collectively. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to join in giving you glory and honor. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.